Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, uh, I'm Nate Larkin here with Aaron Porter. We have a great guest on tap, but before we get there, I got to know, Aaron, are you prepared? I'm sure by the time this show airs, uh, the weekend will be long over, but we're still a few days away from your soul architecture retreat that you're doing at the harbor here in uh, lovely Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. Our first, our first usage of the Harbor House. Yeah, yeah, which is still technically a construction zone, but that doesn't seem to bother you at all. You're going to do it anyway. Well, uh, as long as it doesn't bother the people that are coming, I'm fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> but we warned them. There was a discount. There was a there was a Spartan uh, house okay. discount. But uh, okay, all right. Yeah, I'm excited to be there. Uh, it has been weird. I have not done this intensive for a number of years. And because we have a small enough number, I am trying to cram even more into it. So it is going to be an intensive, man. We're going to be working. But I... Well, uh, here's what I want to know. As you go back over this material now, after a few years and some some shit has gone down in your mm-hmm. life. You've learned some stuff. You've okay. Uh, is the material is, is the material different? Are you? Uh, uh, yes. I, Tell me. Uh, no. the The hardest part as I as I go through this, and and what we're cramming into a Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning is mm-hmm. really what would usually take about nine months to go through with individuals Mm -hmm. meeting Mm -hmm. weekly. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm really, what I'm feeling is that there are unprocessed parts of the last three years of my life that need Mm -hmm. to be drug back to the gospel narrative. There you go. Okay. I, I think Throughout these three years, even the hard parts, uh, I have felt comfortable with God still loving me perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was usually the focus for me. What mm-hmm. What is the gospel saying about it, any situation where I am still perfectly beloved of the Father? Mm-hmm. Um, but I never had to look through it as much through the lens of shame and guilt and other things. I just didn't feel those things. And so, yeah, yeah, as I am going through all of this, putting the sessions together, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be an exhausting weekend for me. I don't know about the other guys. (laughs) This is going to be exhausting for me. Yeah. Uh, But I'm also grateful for that and looking forward to it. Uh, for that reason, I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's got the, I love when there's an edge of fear to anything. I, mm-hmm. I usually feel fairly comfortable uh-huh. with the things I do. Yeah. So when there is that little bit of, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Then I get kind of excited because I know there's something really good and surprising that can be there. 
because okay. there wouldn't be an oh shit if there's not something dangerous. Right, right. And danger either kills you or is awesome. <laughs> the bungee cord either holds or it doesn't. I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, well, in an upcoming episode, maybe the one where we interview John Eldridge or some of the other great guests that we have coming up. In an upcoming episode, we'll get a postmortem on the weekend and we'll see uh, how <laughs> well, God has used it in your life. We'll dissect that body that found out yeah. it does kill you. The fearful thing get killing, <laughs> and today <laughs> we'll dissect it. Uh, yeah, well, I'm excited about today and our guest, uh, <sighs> only because I already know it's going to be an awesome conversation with another five star guest. Uh, who here's the beautiful thing about this guest she does not consider herself a five star guest, don't you? In just, other words, yeah. Uh-huh. In other yeah. words, she can be trusted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to mean something in a few minutes. All right. Uh, hang on, listeners. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are so privileged to have with us as our guest today, Kathy Lertzel. She's the co-founder of the Allender Center and the co-author with Dan Allender of the book Redeeming Heartache. She's also a practicing therapist, and I understand a mom and a bunch of other things. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much. Hi. Uh, so nice of you, really, I, to make time uh, to, to talk with us today after what I judge must already be a pretty busy day for you. You're, you, you carry a client load now, do you? I do. Yeah. As uh, it's new over the last couple of months, but now I see um, lots of different clients, which is really fun. Mostly individuals or couples or? I do couples, individuals, groups. I get to go to Chicago to go run a group next weekend. So it's nice and varied. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, I'd like to first say, I like how your headphones kind of match your, your, I'm not sure what it is, a jacket, a blazer, a sweater. I can't see enough of it, but it looks good. It's very color-coordinated. And Nate, I appreciate all those appropriately introductory remarks, but I want to know, what the hell is an urban farm? I don't know what that means. (laughs) Urban farm. Well, funny enough, I was just out in it. Okay, so Seattle isn't known for its yards. You know, Mm -hmm. like we're not Mm -hmm. the suburbs of like Ohio or something where everything is, you know, lovely and a quarter Mm -hmm. acre or something. And so, and typically houses are built right on top of each other here. Mm -hmm. And we just happened to find a house that it was just a, a tiny bit shy of two lots. So they couldn't legally split it. And so we have this huge plot of land for, you know, Seattle proper. And, and we've, we've created, um, a a massive part of it is now a a garden with chickens and we, we have vegetables and herbs and fruit trees and everything. Yeah. So that's our urban farm. Okay. Now I I know for our listeners that, that, listen to you and follow you. This is the last thing they want to hear about, but I don't care. I'm curious because 
this kind of activity requires kind of a heart for the cultivation of, you know, food and produce within. Yes. Where did where did this come from? Well, I I wish I could take uh, ownership of it, uh, but it is really my husband, and he mm. is from Alabama, and bless he his loves, heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> bless his heart. And so there's just something about him that loves the land. I get a little accent even when I'm talking about him. Um, he doesn't actually have an accent, funny enough, but <laughs> it, it comes out. So yeah, he, he, when we got this, this land, he was like, I'm going to make a farm and I'm going to, I'm going to make a big garden. And I, my, I was overwhelmed. I was running the, the Allender center. I was have having babies and I was like, look, I can keep nothing else alive. Like we're my, I'm closed down for business. Keep the children alive. The rest is up to you. Barely. Children, organization, I will keep them clothed, barely. Like, we're just, we're on the edge of what I can do. So if you want to do this thing, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. Like, I really just kind of wash my hands of it. And he took it on, and it has become this beautiful thing in the middle of Mm -hmm. the landscape of our our life together. And Mm -hmm. I could cry talking about it because it has created such goodness for my little barren heart. And, um, I, I now love it. And so the deal that we, we made was, okay, he'll, he'll do the garden. He'll grow the things. I will harvest it and cook it. Okay. And, and so, you know, right now I'm looking in my backyard, I can see the chickens and we have this huge long table where as soon as it's nice out in Seattle, which isn't until July, uh, we have, we have big dinners, where we literally do farm to table. And so we'll cook all of the things and whatever is in season. And so we have seasons where it's all the tomatoes or all the zucchini or the potatoes and the the pears are ripe all of a sudden. And so we'll, everything is pear, Uh, you know, so we just kind of go through the seasons of this garden and I love cooking and hosting and gathering people around a table. And so it has become a hallmark of how we do life here. I, I'm so curious. I mean, this was something that you had an experience with your husband. What's his name? Will. Will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, he will make a farm. Yes, he will. I'm yes, sorry he will. That, but yeah, so <laughs> Will, uh, this was not something you had experienced in him before. Mm-hmm. And I'm just dying to know that as you watched him create this vision from his head into your yard, did that affect anything in the way you saw him? Did it change anything? Tell me about it. I'm very curious. Again, not topical to anything that anyone (laughs) wants to hear, but I'm curious. Fantastic. No, this is great. I, I, you know, I've been on so many podcasts where it's like the rote questions. This is fantastic. Um, So look, I, I grew up um, where I don't do things unless I know I can do them perfectly. Right. Uh And, and so and then I married this guy who was overly confident about everything. And I was so I like suspicious, yeah, right? Sure. He's like, I don't know. I read a book about it, you know, so just let me go and do it. And so I, this has been a war between us in our relationship because he's so confident and he's like, well, I'm just going to do this thing. And I'm like, well, you don't know how to do that. And mm-hmm. so you either need to hire someone, you need to take a class, you need to get certified, but like, I do not trust your capacity to just do things. But he's a builder. I didn't know this because, you know, when we first got together, we were both broke. So there's no money to build anything. 
living in a tiny townhouse in the middle of Seattle, there's no room to to build anything there either. So mm-hmm. we, then we ended up in this house and he just starts to create and build things. And I'm like freaking out mm-hmm. because I'm like, you don't know how to do this and I don't trust you. Well, turns out he does. <laughs> he just, <laughs> he does, irritatingly so. I'm like, I don't understand how someone is just that gifted at, at not knowing how to do things. Um, but he is. And so once I started to see that about him, I, I just, it, it blew me away and it allowed me to just grow in my trust, also appreciation of how he curates and creates beauty in mm-hmm. all these different things, whether it's a chicken coop or a shed or a deck or this garden, like he just can, he built the office I'm sitting in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so it's really shifted uh, and, and had me let go of the perception that um, you have to be an expert and really yeah. allowed there to be creativity mm-hmm. and and experimentation and uh, and those are things I'm very uh, cautious about. So he has helped me grow into a better person um, and also have organic produce at my fingertips all year long, which is incredible. Uh, go ahead, Kathy. Man. There's there's a word that you use several times there in the last oh, couple of minutes. The word uh-huh. trust. Yes. Which is a huge word, especially for uh, the partners of the male listeners to this program and uh, the female listeners to this program. For a, a lot of those women and some of the men as well have had their, uh, uh, their trust betrayed mm-hmm. or have had difficulty trusting to begin with. Now trying to rebuild or build trust. I wonder if you can talk a little bit out of your own experience about where that initial caution and suspicion comes from and what it takes actually to build trust, especially, and this hasn't been your case, but but I'm sure you've seen plenty of clients who've seen their their, their, their trust betrayed and shattered. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does trust get reassembled? Well, I mean, First, to, to say that trust hasn't been broken between me and my husband would be a big fat lie. <laughs> okay. Um, right. I don't know that you can be married. We've been we're married for only twelve years, but still, um, you know, there it's it's a difficult thing to be partnered mm-hmm. with anyone. Um, and and so, gosh, how? It, well, first, it, I would say how we experience betrayal is very connected to our stories, our, our past uh-huh. stories, uh, our mm-hmm. family of origin. And, you know, we learn quickly that the world is broken. And, mm-hmm. but, but the particular way that we figure out the world is broken is particular to our story. And so how you then deal with that in marriage is going to be very dependent on how well do you know your own story? Uh-huh. Uh, how well do you understand what betrayal looks like, feels like to you, and what your instincts are about protecting yourself around, you know, do you do, do you dismiss it and, and want to not care about it? Do you want to avoid conflict? Do you want to just end it because that's it? You know, one strike and you're out. Like each of us deal with it in different ways according mm-hmm. to how we first experienced harm. Did you? So I know you, that that's not- Did you have okay. that much insight, you know- let's say 10, eight to 10 years ago, as you were walking through a young marriage with your husband and realizing he clearly seems like he was raised in a very different way, like just (laughs) go for it kind of way. And you, for whatever reason, were very protective of, Mm -hmm. no, we need an expert. 
and use that word as well. And that's such uh-huh. a scary word, right? Because I know. Because who is the expert? The one that got that degree? Oh, good. Now I give them permission to fuck my brain up. Perfect. <laughs> like, you know, the guy next door might be a better expert because he's been married 50 years and actually knows how to listen. So that yep. expert word is a scary, I mean, in Isn't my it? trust heart, I'm like, ooh, that word makes me immediately half close my shell. Like, I'm yes. still looking, but I'm half closed because I don't trust. Yeah. Well, so, and that's why I use the word. Right. Because it was a farce. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, we it, here, this is what I've learned. Well, one, um, I had the technical insight 10 years ago to know I've been teaching this, this work on story work that Dan and I write about in the book and what we do at the Allender Center. I've been doing that for, I started my training 18 years ago. So technically I did know now that is very different than living it out <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and understanding how it plays itself out in your day-to-day life. Um, Wait, can we so, pause? Can we pause no. right now? Because the listeners can't see you. Kathy's saying this with no shame on her face at all, saying yeah. that she had been doing this for five years before entering into a relationship where she then sucked at it. No oh, yeah. shame in her face <laughs> on that, and that's important because that's a huge step. I don't know how it went for you. But I know for me to fail at things that I knew better about or had taught about, and then I fail at it, that's like, you know, a a chasm that you can fall into for shame. So I just wanted to affirm that somehow you're telling this story without shame on your face, and I believe I don't hear any of it in your voice. Go on with your shameless story. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I, I think anyone who's going to do the sort of work that that I do in in this world, um, if we're not radically honest, and there have been seasons where I have not been radically honest and not wanted to see my own face, my the, mm-hmm. the places where I wound, the places where I fail, the places where are shadows that I just don't want to see. Um, it it is uh, it, it is heartbreaking to to know of the debris that that's caused in my world and in my life. However, to stay in this work, you have to continually come back to the mat and be willing to see yourself over and over and over again and and come to the realization with humility that none Mm -hmm. of us know how to do this. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you've written 20 books. I don't care if you've seen 500 uh, clients over your lifetime. I don't care if you have a PhD. When you get in the game and you start to look at your own life and and you look at your own relationships, every single person causes harm. Every single person creates delight in some way, mm. um, and that is that's unavoidable. Oh, and man. so, wait, can you say right? that again? Yeah. Every single person goes. I'll let you say it. Your voice sounds. Oh better. gosh, I every don't single know. person causes harm, yes. and every single person creates delight. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah hands down. And, and that will continue. And it's never just one or the other either. Mm-hmm. Right. So every time we create harm, there's typically something of delight of beauty. Every time we create delight, it's never purely delight. There's, there's always a shadow lurking, but that's, that's what it means to be human. That's what it means mm-hmm. to live in this world. And I think so many of us are in denial because we're so afraid and so filled with shame because there's a sense right. that if somehow, if we just work hard enough or read enough books or do enough work, that we're going to arrive at a place where our marriages don't suck 
or mm-hmm. were really good parents. Like my kids, you know, you can't see it, but my kids just walked in. You can see them from the window, you know, yeah. and it's like, look, you know, I, I screw up my kids every day and I've written books on this. Like, that's insane. Um, mm-hmm. How do you live with yourself when, when you know that there's such a dichotomy? It, it can only be through grace and humility um, mm. And or else none of us would be writing anything or being on any podcast or talking out loud because we'd just be steeped in our own shame. Right. And this trickle mm. translates down to people that haven't written books, but they've been in church their whole life. Mm-hmm. And then they hit that wall where they're like, I think I'm the one that screwed up my kid. I'm the one who had an affair. I'm the one whatever. And and that same they have the same opportunity to accept this deeper truth that the information did not ever save them. And the information is not incorrect because it didn't keep them from stupid. Right. Like it's, it's just a huge, it's no different whether you're a pastor or writer, a podcaster or the person sitting in your underwear, watching old Jerry Springer reruns all the same. All the same. Yeah. And and then Sorry, and then first. what do we do? Right? With I don't what know where the, that image came from, it was, but it, it was, was the first thing that came to mind. Striking. I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think so much of of this. It, my husband and I were just talking about this, where, where you know, when, when you come to that realization of um you're you're trying you're you're trying to become more virtuous and a better person and look at yourself and and do the work and yet there's also this sense of um we're, we're still failing at, and 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 so then what do you just give mm-hmm. up do you wrap wrap it up do do we all just kind of hang up our our uh our hats and say you know better someone else try N- no i think i think once we can release ourselves into it we can keep building the garden. We can keep doing the work and showing up for people in a more humble place because we know who we are and we understand our stories and we're not afraid of them. Mm. That's, mm. I think that's freedom. When, when you told the story about your, your urban, urban farm, which was so much better than I even thought it would be. Uh, <laughs> I was just curious. Um, part of what you said beneath the words were, you coming to a place where you released your fears, stopped protecting yourself, and hoped for the best version instead of protecting yourself from the worst version that you assumed your husband would bring to the table. Ooh, do I have to pay you for that one? Uh- <laughs> so, so how? I mean, that's that's the story you told, yeah. and it's well, a, it's great. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so what? Because I think that's everybody's story to some degree. It's just different versions of protecting ourselves. So what was your journey, even after you knew all this stuff where you're like, oh, okay, geez, I'm I just I, I thought I was at square 50. I moved back to square 22. How did you move into those fears and find beauty where you only saw danger? Gosh, that's such a good question. Uh and it's, it's when, like you said, it's so storied, right? Because part of my safety has been relying on quote unquote experts, that mm-hmm. there is such a thing and that my safety would become an understanding that there's a right and a wrong answer. There's a black and white. 
there's a professional and a non-professional, right? So it my my safety because of where I felt fear was that somehow I can invite in people who are safe and trustworthy, right? Back to the word trust. And and I think what Will invited me to was that sense of the wildness. Mm-hmm. Um and and the the idea of pioneering like hey we don't know this could fail but what's the worst that could happen right mm-hmm. you know so the the tomatoes we plant don't grow like who cares no one really cares about that um you know having to address ideas of finances of you know how do i create protection around holding the purse strings close to make sure we're not spending mm-hmm. money on things that you know are bad investments or, you know, all those things, right? But that's all based on my fear and my need for control. And so what what Will did was was engage my imagination, my heart, and also helped me understand like you're scared. What are you so scared of? Where is mm-hmm. that coming from? Where what is, is that the history? Coming from? Where yeah. is that coming from? And can we start to engage that? So that you're not so bound to dogmatism and you know and and right or wrong thinking or structures that that feign safety, but they're actually no more safe than the other things which you know we're now seeing in our culture, and mm-hmm. and people are freaking out and doubling down on dogmatism and the right and the wrong so that they can squelch their internal fear that mm-hmm. is actually never able to go away but it can be engaged and it can mm-hmm. be loved. And there's a bit of a bullshit detector going off on the oh. whole concept that uh, not not that you're saying something of bullshit, but uh, the idea of I lean into the expert because right. I need I have a need for control. Yes, but it's actually I I think what you're saying is I would rather abdicate my control to someone that I have already decided can think for me based on this criteria, I just won't let go of control to someone who's not a sure thing. Absolutely. So it's a construct. It's a, it's a control construct where you're in no more control going with them than the wild one. That's right. That's right. But the wild one asks you to be more alive in your own body. I mm-hmm. like this yeah. wild one. I like Will. Yeah. I think he's gone in or out a couple times in the background. <laughs> I like him. I want to wave to him. <laughs> Hi, Will. Well, it's either Will or his wild children. So I don't know which one it is. They seem too too tall to be one of the small children, but the dog was definitely one of the big dogs. Yes. <laughs> I know you're back. You're all them. here. This I is our thing. Uh, and Nate, did you want to add something? Yeah. But, but, just uh, I'm looking for some personal detail. How many children, by the way, and how old? Oh, yeah. So I have two kids, a six and a nine-year-old, uh, two okay. English golden retrievers, six chickens, and a husband. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. You've lost a chicken. What I was sent we was have. you had, Yeah, I'm sorry. Kevin, we did lose one. I know. We lost one over the winter. It's okay. She was old. Oh, well, then screw her. All right. I have. (laughs) Sorry. That was my. I'm an empath, you see. (laughs) I have a question from a listener. Can I ask a question from a listener? Sure. Okay. I'm asking if I can ask a question so I can bring it up. Here it is. This listener is curious if there was anything about any of the six types presented in Redeeming Heartache 
that you found surprising or hard to wrestle with yourself as you and Dan were fleshing it out and writing the book? Oofta. Yes. So there are two archetypes that my easiest archetype I could talk about for 500 hours is orphan. Like Mm -hmm. me and the orphan, we understand each other. We're, we've got it. Um, now when I start talking about priest, um, it, it gets a lot harder for me. And, you know, if you've read the book, you actually know that I write about Will and the garden in the priest chapter because Will's priest is a lot more developed than mine. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of even what you're talking about, it, about my fear and my structures, all of those things are the orphan that want control, want to feign safety, want the structures where I can abdicate my own knowing, my own intuition into the hands of other people. Um, and, and the priest is the one that reminds you of the wild. It gets you back into the dirt. It gets you back to the ground. It asks you to expand your heart, expand your understanding of humanity, expand your understanding of the earth. And, and there's something about that. That's I, I need that. I long for it. And it is the hardest category Mm -hmm. for me because it feels like, um, it's, it's a hard reach for me. Um, but it, it's also been the place of most redemption in my own story because I now understand, like when I read the priest chapter, I'll weep. I, I wrote it. Uh, I'm telling you, there, there's something, uh, like I don't know what happened when I wrote this chapter. Somehow I was able to tap into it in a way that I haven't quite integrated. But when I'll read it, I just weep because it's it's aspirational. I long for the priestly presence, the, the one that can help settle my body, to help remember my story, to help remind me who I am. Um, and and it's and it's not where I naturally go when um, it, it, in my natural calling or natural gifting. So it's the place that I've actually focused the most on over the last couple of years. And yet you have been given a partner that helps. Yeah. You walk into that just right. in the day to day. Yes, yeah, it's it's a beautiful redemptive arc. So, can you give give the listeners the six types? Sure. So, um, when in the book we talk about three core wounds: um, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. And then we talk about um, the the growth edge of those things, which is the priest, the prophet, and the king and the queen. Um, and so, you know, those are all kind of biblical archetypes mm-hmm. that that scripture talks about a lot. And the orphan, widow, stranger are the least of these, are the least mm-hmm. protected, most exposed parts of society um, that need a lot of attention, a lot of care. Um, and so we kind of use some um, psychological premises uh, and, and attach it to some of these archetypes and kind of weave them together in the book to talk about what happens to us when we realize we're living in a fallen world and how harm, how wounding takes place in our bodies, in our minds. Um, but then we go into these other ideas of, of what, what's our call to, um, to, to live into the stations that are, that are laid out for us in scripture around who we're meant to become. And, and Jesus says that he's the perfect representation of the prophet, priest, and the king and queen. And so we then talk about kind of how do you heal an orphan to become more like a priest? How do you heal the stranger to embrace their place as a prophet? And how do you heal the heart of a widow to, to move into that king or queenly aspect of who they're meant to be? So, I mean, archetypes have, 
have been around the, the <laughs> most famous, obviously, well, I, I would suspect the most well-known in the past being Jungian archetypes. Mm-hmm. So what made you guys feel like, okay, we need to rewrite archetypes. That That's missing something. Here's what we're bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I would say, one, um, archetypes are, are everywhere, right? So mm-hmm. it's Jung did it, but it's also in every single fairy tale, um, every myth you know, has an archetype component mm-hmm. to it. And so really archetypes are, are an imagination for a character that is, that ends up being universal to the lived human experience. So kind of, um, kind of mm-hmm. the foundational aspects of every character and every story that's been written since Gilgamesh. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, archetypes would you, would are you nothing say they new. show up? Would you say they show up as well in internal family systems that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think they show up everywhere. And and really the reason they're useful is because it just gives us something to attach our story to that helps us make more sense of it. Right. And okay. and so that's that's why they're helpful. And you know, the same way that when you talk about orphan, immediately you're in your mind. I, I was just teaching um in Houston, Texas, and I, I teach on this topic a lot all over the country. And I was like, you know, tell me what or- archetype you're, you think of when I say orphan. And usually the first one is always little orphan Annie, right? That's the mm-hmm. first one that everyone always says in the audience. <laughs> and all of a sudden this guy raises his hand is like Batman. And I was like, oh, I love you. It's I amazing. Like yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> right, so, but right away, you're thinking story. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the point of using the archetypes. It's not that we thought we could offer something, but it helps people get into their story um, and it's almost a, sta- a safe way to move into your story where you don't have to tackle it straight on. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, you, with with the idea of, okay, let's talk about an orphan, you get to kind of detach yourself a little bit from your pain, your trauma, like what feels like really um, still live wires in your story. And you get mm-hmm. to kind of look at it sideways of like, here's the idea of an orphan. And then someone can start to overlay their story onto the story of an orphan and see where it matches um, mm. but it's, it's a more approachable way, which is why we wanted to do the work. Um, okay, and so I think it's... the other piece is that it's, it's very rarely that we talk about archetypes in terms of scripture. And I think archetype is chock full in scripture. We just mm-hmm. hardly ever talk about it. Mm-hmm. So it's a writer's prompt for the heart mm-hmm. so that I don't feel like I have a blank page in front of me. Absolutely. And then Absolutely. you've got these archetypes that God revealed himself to us through these, even the Mel- Melchizedek character, we've got the prophet, priest, and king kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that jump starts our understanding of him. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not weird in that everything God gives us about himself is anthropomorphic. Right. It's, it's coming through the filter of, I'm gathering you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And they're all... I think the word archetype feels heady to people mm-hmm. who haven't heard someone like you explain. No, no, it's it's not heady. It's in fact yeah. it's the opposite of intellectual. It's, That's right. It's every nursery rhyme story yes. you learned as a child. Yes, mm. yes, yeah, and and a lot of how this got started was because my love for fairy tales and mythology. And, and what I found was that so often we look at scripture as kind of theology versus story. Mm-hmm. 
And most mm-hmm. of scripture is story. Mm-hmm. And, and, but we don't look at like a character like David and say, okay, what is the story of this person's heart and his failures and what happened? And what does that mean in terms of where we can understand more about human nature, more about our experience with God? You know, it, we, we look at it and are like, okay, this is the rule book that we're going to glean from yeah. this yeah. in terms of how to live. And I just, mm-hmm. I think it takes the art of scripture out, out of it. Uh, the storytelling, which, which human hearts are changed through story. Um, and, and we, that's why I think Jesus used parables all the time. Like he never answered a question straight up. He would tell a story that must have been infuriating and no one really understood. And everyone was then able to, to say, well, I think it means this. And I think it means this. That was on purpose because that's how human hearts change when we can find ourselves in the midst of the story. Okay, so you're dipping your toe in some dangerous waters. I want to hear from Princeton Theological Seminary graduate Nate Larkin on this. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh, Kathy here is talking about story, which I know some of the people I grew up with would say, use the word story, you're saying it's not true. And if it's not true, then we're not dealing with truth. And now you're saying the Bible's just a wishy-washy bunch of stories. May as well be reading the Iliad. However... People did not always think thusly. I'm immediately thinking of Noah. Here's a tale that is told. Oh, no, a tale. No, no. It's not a tale. We're going to find the fossils. We're going to build us an ark in Kentucky. Uh, There was a huge shift in the way we approach the Bible after the rise of Darwin, where it was kind of the Bible being used in a certain way against this secular humanism, whatever, but it was a whole shift away from story into something else. Explain that to a smart guy. Oh, what? You're tossing this in my direction? Well, you have Absolutely. a really, you've got good <laughs> credentials for this. I, I'm just sitting here with a crappy dog behind me, a small one, not a big one like Kathy's got. I, I just really love the answer that, that, uh, I heard David Bunker give to somebody because he was he was talking I, I, at one point in metaphorical terms around scripture, very much weaving story and in that mesmerizing way that David Bunker has. And somebody interrupted him who was obviously very disturbed because they were on this propositional fundamentalist train, worried that we were getting too far from, you know, orthodoxy. And so somebody stopped him and said, David, are you saying that the Bible isn't literally true? And he smiled. He went, oh, it's truer than that. It's truer than that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I have to ask, was this the campfire confrontation that that we both know and love? Was that what you're talking about? Uh, no, no. Okay. Not. I didn't remember. Yeah. I thought I would remember yeah. if it was that one. Wasn't that one yeah, with yeah. David Bunker? No, no. It's yeah. truer than that. That's amazing. I mean, that's basically saying that the eternal word is beneath and between and below and around the words, mm-hmm. not just these simple words. Yeah. It's yeah. the spirit in us and in the word. And that's come through story. And it doesn't mean it's not true. This is not an anti-true statement. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think story is actually truer. Yes. I mean, it oftentimes, 
the reason we're drawn to literature, to, to stories, to books, to Netflix, like Lord, how many of us finished Netflix over the pandemic? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, because we were, we are starving for, for stories to help us settle ourselves and understand our experience, what we were going through. I don't know if you remember during the pandemic, but people were binging on like all of the um, dystopic dramas because they're like, what's going to happen next? You know, like, (laughs) you know, all of a sudden outbreak from like 1986 is, you know, back in style and everyone is watching it. That's a great movie. Right. It's a great (laughs) movie. Right. But there's something about it because we know intuitively that, what's true about the human heart, but oftentimes we don't have language for it. We don't have an understanding of it. And so we tell stories so that we can get to the gist of something that's beyond language. But here's the danger. Here's what I want to ask you about. Uh, I I have written uh, a memoir and I tell uh, a lot of personal stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, My wife, now that book has sold an awful lot of copies. My wife still has refused to read it. I didn't know that. (laughs) She hasn't read it because she says, I know that I remember some things differently. Mm -hmm. And I know now as I go back and as I, you know, I've questioned aunts and uncles who have a clear, they were adults when I was a child. They remember things that I have only foggy recollections of. Um, And I have made a way, found a way to make sense of my story and I can do it in a way that brings some clarity in my understanding and makes things come together. But now as I kind of go back and I look at that version of my story, I think I even say at some point in the book that in the stories I have told, I told as a young man, they were fictionalized versions of actual events. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a danger of creating a comfort a comforting, comfortable version of a story uh, or one that assigns blame elsewhere and and puts me in a victim role. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we safeguard ourselves and our heart? How do we not cause more harm to ourselves and others by the stories we create? There's my question. Okay. Uh, That's a whole other podcast, but let me give you the short answer. Um, I think one, uh, we know that there is no such thing as, uh, a didactic memory. Like you cannot actually recall everything. Right. Like as if it's a movie, Mm -hmm. um, we, the, 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 the brain is not capable of that. So then, you know, I just did this podcast with Dan on this around, around memory Mm -hmm. and, and we got a lot of pushback because I actually I say that. So then the next question logically is then, well, then how can we trust any memory, including mm-hmm. memories of abuse and all these different things that end up coming up? But but he, the thing about the human mind is that we will have different impressions according to our stories, what we pick up, what we perceive. And so there are two different set things we want to look at: explicit memory and yes. implicit memory. Yes. And, and so this is when you start to understand the neuroscience of the brain and that, that now I'm getting into deeper waters. None, neither of you are neurosciences, right? Like right, I can keep exactly. going. Okay, great. <clears throat> you will get that's happy to have feedback on this. This is not my field. <laughs> but from what I understand, the, there are parts of our brain that often don't intersect because when trauma hits, we mm-hmm. refragment. 
And Mm -hmm. so oftentimes our memories, we have this implicit sense of what happened, that there was danger. I wasn't safe. You know what? um, But I, but you're accurately reading the people around you. You can understand threat. That's how we survive as a species is by understanding when we're in danger. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's our implicit memory. There's a, there's a part of us that has a sense of things that is, is pretty accurate, although it, it can be skewed according to how much trauma you have, right? There's explicit memory. That's actually the place in our limbics or in our brain that's logged memories that, that mm-hmm. are fairly accurate. That, and it's, but it's the place when we get to the true story is when the explicit and the implicit connect. And then we can start to understand both like your perception of what happened is just as important as what actually happened because uh-huh. the way your body and brain logged the moment has a lot to do with how safe you're feeling in your environment, which has to do with your family of origin, which has to do with the things around you. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's the interplay between those things mm-hmm. that we, we need to look at. I mean, and even if you're not accurate, you still have to lean into it. Well, let me, yeah. uh, let me uh-huh. pause you there. Cause we're talking about perspective, how you perceive yes. a thing. That's right. And I think this is where the churchianity idea of just truth, there's only one truth, doesn't serve us well with other human beings. And then you hear people saying, well, that's my truth, which can be very annoying, where you're like, okay, we're both in this moment. Now you're talking about your truth, and we're supposed to have two truths. But that's not entirely inaccurate in that however I perceive a thing is the way I will live it out. I will, emo- I will have emotions based on my perception. Mm-hmm. You might be like being really nice. You happen to use a word that triggers something from my past. And now I'm perceiving you as being hostile. And you might be the nicest person in the world. But I'm living in the emotion that's coming from the perception. So it is my reality, regardless of what the other person is experiencing in that moment. So there are mm-hmm. two truths. And... They might not be entirely accurate. I might be misreading it, but I have to start with my perception and unravel it from there. Is that what we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And and this is, I think, this is where it helps as we explore our story. This is what I have found in therapy. Somebody who is attuned to my body in a way that I am not, Mm -hmm. who can observe what's going on with me physically as I relate the story, as I have come to understand it and can spot the apparent discrepancies between explicit and implicit memory, mm-hmm. question me. Uh, and it's a, a, a place where it's safe enough for me to walk back a statement or re-examine a thought or a feeling or open mm-hmm. myself up to actually experiencing a suppressed emotion in a way that alters now the story as I believe, isn't that the role of a skilled therapist? Yes. And I, I, I think part of the work is to be able to let what we're afraid of come to the surface. And a lot of people don't want to do that because they're afraid that they're wrong mm-hmm. or they're not trusting that their, their body's uh, um, implicit memory is to be listened to. And yeah. so what we, and, but, but I think what Aaron, what you said, to, you have to have a starting place. And so if you're willing to start and all you can start with is, is your reality, 
Mm-hmm. But then if you can if you can bring that to the surface with integrity and even if you're not sure what it means, you can then sit with someone who who can accurately read, who can be with you, who understands what your body is intuitively potentially saying and can can attune to your face and your body and help you move through those spaces. You can understand both where um where what you're feeling is is true. Like we know from uh neuroscience, there's a, a guy named David, uh, David Schnarch, and he wrote this brilliant book called Brain Talk. And what, what he has seen through his research um, is that you can accurately read uh, uh, the mind of a parent or, or whoever's in your life by the time you're five. Wow. Accurately read, and not, not fully, not the nuance or complexity, but you can read deceit, mm-hmm. threat, intent, right? Mm-hmm. You're accurately reading your caregivers by the time you're five. And what we often find is that kids will read accurately the reality of their caregiver, but they don't, they can't believe it. They can't let that settle into their body because it would mean that they have to deal with something in their caregiver that they don't know how to do. You can't believe that mom doesn't actually want to play with me. Right. So, you know, when my son comes and asks me to play with him and I say, oh, I would love to play with you, but I can't because I'm so busy and I have to go do this thing, right? He he knows intuitively, he's reading me correctly, where he knows that I'm lying to him. Mm-hmm. But he needs to keep me good in order for us to stay in relationship. And so he's going to believe me when I say, I would love to, but I can't. So now we have the difference between your explicit memory is your mom saying, I would love to play with you, but I can't. Mm. Your implicit memory is that you can tell mom doesn't want to play with me. And that's, and so, and that's the beginning of the, the struggles with attachment. That's right. Yes. With feeling seen and safe and soothed and whatever the other S is. Satchel? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> the five S's are different than attachment theory, but yes. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's creating that I can't trust this moment. And right. I don't know what to do with it. And now I'm going to yeah. learn how to guard myself. Or not trust myself. Or not trust myself. Oh, that's even worse. No, I don't know if it's worse. Right? Let's call it yeah. equally bad. Yeah. That's a struggle. But it, it puts a kid into a bind. And and yeah. that's a very benign uh, uh story, right? We all kind of do like little white lies because we're self-protecting because mm-hmm. I don't want to say to him, honey, I don't want to play with you because mm-hmm. mama doesn't want to. Like I'd, I want to do something else instead. That is harder for me because then I have to deal with myself and mm-hmm. the fact that I don't actually want to play with my kid. I want to believe I'm the mom who wants to always play with their kid. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to borrow like the, from the dishes or, or whatever is needed from me so that I can feel better. He doesn't want to believe that he has a mom that doesn't want to play with him either. So we now collude in a narrative that isn't actually true. Wow. That goes oh, against wow. what he knows in his body, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. tricky stuff. So this is what's going on in all of our stories. That's the stuff you have to get to in therapy. Wow. That is a whole uh, other podcast. We need to do yeah. that that podcast. <laughs> Nate, your question you opened up a can of worms, man. I know. And and meanwhile, I'm watching some activity through the window and back, and I get I the sense that Kathy's family is is uh, wanting some of her attention. And here we are. We're just oh, my gosh. Her Can I ask thing. one more question? You're trying to wrap it up. You're doing a wrap-up thing. 
Kathy, I am do doing you a you have time thing. for one more I'm question? fine. They're, they know okay. that when the sign is up, I'm off limits. <laughs> okay. All right, okay. just one more. Because right. you were talking about story and people binge watching, and I was just thinking, okay, and in historical cultures, whether it was the Lakota Indians, they had a handful of stories of the white buffalo woman or whatever she was called. They, and that, was, that helped them understand their culture, their values. You go to Greece, they've got these stories. It, it was a very limited amount of stories, even mm-hmm. going to the Hebrew culture. Here's, here's right. the scriptures. Right. I have wondered... One of two things, the fact that we are now producing stories at a rate that is unprecedented in the history of the world, mm-hmm. either it's fine because it's all telling the same handful of stories in different ways, mm-hmm. or it's really not good for us because stories were always intended for a sacred purpose, and now we've willy-nilly the shit out of it, technically speaking. Right. That is a technical <laughs> term, for sure. Uh, oh gosh. Okay. So I don't know the, I, the science, I have an opinion about this, so I will just state, this is my opinion. Okay. Kathy's opinion on this question. My opinion, not, not an expert. Uh, I think we are getting flooded, um, in a way that is actually really damaging to our brains. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think good story is, it is good. like I I I love watching stories. I love the the um, amount of stories that we have access to. The different perspectives. I think that is beautiful, and that was never allowed. Right? We're we're mm-hmm. in a Renaissance era where we're we're getting exposed to more perspectives than ever before. Right. That is good. That is good. Um, the way we consume story keeps us from engaging and dealing with our own stories. And I think it ends up being an escape hatch for us to, to not have to deal with ourselves and where we're dysregulated, where we're angry, where we're scared, where we're disconnected, because we can just consume this thing first for uh, until forever. You know, you mm-hmm. could, you could binge watch until the, until you die and never run out mm-hmm. of content. Um, that's that, it, but that's an escape route for us to not have to actually be present to our own lives and deal with, with the little lives that are around us, whether it's kids or, or relationships or neighbors. Um, but we're inundated and we feel full. We feel like we're living when we're, we're living vicariously through these other stories Mm -hmm. versus, versus actually being able to be present to a story that's a lot harder and more complex. And that's our own. Which, which kind of betrays the purpose of story that was supposed Mm -hmm. to prepare me to engage with the community that I was given. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we have to be really careful. Yeah. So, but you're telling people you need to shut it off more. Good luck with that. It's not going to happen. <laughs> well, That's the most what, pessimistic uh, thing I'm going to say, but you know. It's a, <laughs> no, that, I, I found what she just said both sobering and inspiring uh, mm-hmm. because Allie and I have fallen into the binge watching trap. And I need a motivation to put uh, a govern, mm-hmm. uh, to, to govern that. Yeah. And create space for us to. Uh, participate in each other's stories and take a closer look at our own. 
Well, well we are, we're far enough into this. We're just going to wrap this up. We're not doing a closing segment. We can go from here. All right, Aaron. So the first thing we need to do is say, if people want to check out uh, Redeeming Heartache, other things that you're involved in, where do they go? What do they type uh, into their computer boxes? KathyLorzell.com is my website. Um, you can uh, buy Redeeming Heartache anywhere that books are sold. And then you can mm-hmm. follow me on Instagram at Kathy Lorzell. Um, Kathy is spelled with a C and Lorzell, for those of you that are unfamiliar, is O-E-R-Z-E-L, Kathy Lorzell. Yeah. Okay. And, and if you, uh, go ahead, the, uh, uh, Can they also find your... Uh, schedule of appearances and that kind of thing or, con- uh, or contact you if they would yeah, like all, to. All of my upcoming conferences are on the website okay. and you can okay. also find them on my Instagram. Um, and, and then you can also sign up for a newsletter if you want to hear about upcoming events. Um, there are actually a couple, I don't know if you guys know Adam Young. Um, oh yeah. A, uh, yeah. Adam will be uh, the speaker at our big national retreat this year. Oh, good. Yeah. So Adam and I are doing some conferences as well together this year. So you can check all that out on our websites. Yeah. And Kathy and Will will be heading out on a botanical tour about uh, (laughs) urban farms and uh, fruit tree husbandry. And so keep keep an eye out for that because we want to meet Will in this. Nate, where do people get a hold of us if they want to say, man, that podcast was just the most inspirational thing I've ever heard. Just fluffy stuff that makes us feel good or things you disagreed with. Yeah, if you if you like what you heard, then send us an email at piratemonkpodcast at gmail dot com. And if, if you don't you, like, send yeah. something to Adam Young. No, yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he loves it. He'll just delete it. <laughs> uh, very good. All right. Well, we've kept you long enough, so we've reached the end. Nate. Yeah, this is how we wrap it. Now, in a moment, you're going to get to say your name, Kathy, uh, because we sign off by introducing ourselves, and that's how we close the show. So that's it for this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. I'm Kathy. And we were your pals this week on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yo-ho! The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.